Welcome to Confabulation, the podcast. I'm Matt Goldberg, and these are stories, true as we can tell them. In the Welcome to this new season of Confabulation, the podcast. I'm Matt Goldberg, the executive director of Confabulation, and I'm joined by my co-host, Deb Vanslet, a producer here in Montreal. Hey, Deb, how's it going? Hi, Matt. This is super exciting. I know. It is your sixth year being involved in the show. First as a storyteller, now as a producer. How does that feel? I love it. I find that uh, the storytelling going to sound so corny, but <laughs> it gives me hope for the future. I know! Uh, it does. My part-time work is as an English teacher at a college here in Montreal, and uh, I've started teaching storytelling based on how much I love confabulation, how much it's changed my life, and uh, it does give me hope for the future because people, there's something about true life stories that people latch on to, something that we're missing out on, I think. Everybody is very attentive, really engaged. They talk about the stories and to the storytellers afterwards, like there's a real engagement with what's happening. I know. And I it's um, intergenerational. And this is the beautiful thing. Going into our 10th season in Montreal, uh, Toronto has now been running for three years, Victoria, I think, as well. And just that, uh, that is so beautiful to me. The, 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 there is so much interest in storytelling, so much love for stories, and so many stories out there to share. Um, I always encounter this with my students, this feeling that we don't have anything worth talking about in our lives, and that is the first lie that I have to shatter. So let's get started with our first stories of the new season. We thought, what better way to get to know these wonderful hosts than with a pair of wonderful stories? We've got stories from Deb and from me, and our theme this week is going to be perspectives. We're going to be looking at changes in perspectives, the way that our lives seem to shift and rearrange and our relationships along with them. So the first story is going to be by Matt. And I don't know if you're like me, but if you're like me, this has been a pretty stressful year. Can we, can we go that far? Maybe the last two years have been a little bit crazy. I think we've all felt that, right? Like, we've all felt the anxiety. I mean, let's count it off, right? Like, like, like Trump is still president. And, like, if you haven't watched Nanette on Netflix, you really need to... And like Hot House Earth, Google it if you didn't see that article, because we're all in a lot of trouble right now. And I am not very good at dealing with stress, okay? I have a few strategies for dealing with stress. Uh, I do too many things, that's one, and that, and that works really well. If I do like 30,000 things, I feel less stressed. Um, and I have children, so it's not that hard. Uh, another thing I do when I have a lot of stress is I'm a fidgeter, like a real fidgeter. Like uh, the one time I had detention in, in elementary school, uh, I sat there tapping a pen until a friend next to me like, just, just had to like, because it was like, it was getting dangerous, that pen. I clap as well. I clap furtively, and it's really upsetting. Um, or, or my wedding ring, like I'll twist it, I'll throw it, I'll spin it on tables. It's like, it's a mess. I'm a mess when I get stressed. But you know, it gets all the worse in the summer for me because in the summer, I'm not teaching anymore. My kids are still at daycare because I'm not a great father. Um, <laughs> I am just like, I don't know what to do with myself sometimes. Uh, uh, so I tried something new this summer. This summer, I, I, I woke up and uh, Trump was still president and I said, uh, I'm gonna jog. 
Like, I am going to go for a run. And I haven't, like, run in five years, but, like, I've chased children for five years, and that's kind of the same thing. And I've picked them up and thrown them over my shoulder. Like, I'm like, this is great. This is a really good idea. I'm going to test my new superpower, see how far it gets me. So I go to my room. I change. Uh, I still have running clothes. I didn't know. I put them on. It's good. I'm like, I'm ready to run. And I go outside, and within two blocks, I am hit with a stunning real which is that I am not a runner at all. <laughs> Running is garbage. <laughs> I am like, like, am I bleeding? No, I just am in agony and like my lungs hurt. And this summer was rough, but like I was like, I saw this girl who had been running. She's clearly been running for a bit, and like she, she had time to go around the block before I recovered from this two, two steps that I taken out of my house. And I'm just like, no, I gotta see it through. I gotta, go, I, I don't. I abandon ship. I go home. I walk the last part. I do kind of like if you've ever failed at running, you've done this. You like, I like, I did a fake stretch on the way. So if people saw me, like, that guy ran. That guy definitely ran. Um, and I get home. I get in the shower and I decide I'm never going to talk about this again except with 150 of my closest confidants. <laughs> and uh, it's the next day. The next day I'm dropping off the kids at daycare. Uh, when it hits me, uh, I, uh, I get into the car and I'm doing my nervous twitching because I'm listening to the Slate political gab fest and Trump is still president. And like I'm like tapping my finger on the wheel and something's wrong. And what's wrong is my wedding band is missing. Oh no, my wedding band is missing and I know exactly what happened to it because when I was changing to go for the run, it was right after I was listening to some other podcast, Pod Save America, I don't recommend it currently, and I was like losing my mind and so like, like I had taken it off and like was flipping it around and I must have put it in my jeans pocket and I remember taking off my jeans to change into my shorts before the run and I remember hearing like a ping of a coin that had been in my pocket bouncing out of my pocket and thinking, that's a weird sounding coin, but then thinking nothing of it, but that was yesterday. Where are those jeans? now where is my ring so like I, I, I go home and I am uh, searching my our, our bedroom and like our bedroom is full of stuff because we have kids and like I'm taking out boxes that have been sitting there for three years searching them like nothing I'm looking under the bed I'm losing my mind I can't find my wedding ring like it's I've never thought about this before this has never been a stressor before and it's it's just gone I take everything out of the bedroom the bed the desk everything Everything, and I can't find it anywhere. I do a great job cleaning, which is great, but I can't find the ring. And like, I'm so upset. Um, later that night, the uh, cat is trying to convince, it's fine, it's just a ring, it's gonna turn up, and if it doesn't, it's just a thing, it doesn't matter, but like, it hurts. Like, I feel like such an idiot. And that whole week, I'm like, looking around the room, Ella tries to help me, she like, picks up something at one point, Owen tries to help me, he jumps on my back, he's two, he doesn't know how to help you. And it's devastating, I can't describe it, I feel like such an idiot, like such a loser, and like, I don't know, one night I'm putting Ella to bed, she's five, and I love putting her to bed, but I just, she can tell when I feel garbage, and she's saying, what's wrong? And I say, well, I lost this ring, and I love this ring. And she says, well, Daddy, you can get a new ring. And I say, no, no, honey, Like I got this ring when we got married, when Kat and I got married, and it means a lot to me. Well, you can just get married again. It doesn't. It doesn't like. It doesn't work that way. I mean, it does. It does. It, I, I don't really want to get married again. And at the end of the day, honey, like, 
I just loved this ring. I loved having something that I could hold on to, something uh, that was like this reminder of the bond that I have with your mama. And, and Ella looks at me and she says, but, but daddy, you can hold me. <laughs> I am a reminder of the bond with mama. And like, I, you know, what do you say? <laughs> <laughs> like I melt, and uh, it's just this perfect little moment. And like a week goes by, and another week goes by, and 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 Cat finds my ring. Uh, if you want to know this, by the way, apparently gold is bouncy, and it managed to leap off the floor and into her closet and into the cuffs of one of her pairs of pants that were hanging up. So that's like, I should have gone to Vegas or something. That's a beautiful shot. Um, and she's like, great, and I felt a lot better, but like. There was, a, there was a second moment there, and that moment in, in the bed with my daughter is something I've thought a lot about. Like, I tell a lot of stories about Ella at this show, like, like a lot of stories about Ella at this show, but something has changed with my daughter. She's, she's five, she is starting kindergarten, and to you hearing me tell that story, you might just be hearing me parrot back her silly voice, her wonderful, weird wisdom, but to me, I'm like, I'm realizing she's more and more a person. She is more and more outside of me and able to reflect on things and think, think about things differently than I do. And I gotta say, that's changing the way I'm gonna be doing this part of my job, the way I'm gonna be telling stories about her because I read this recently in, a, in an article, a woman describing her relationship with her daughter changing at five because she looked over at her daughter looking at the window and she realized her daughter was thinking something that she would never know and that was profound. And knowing in that moment she would never write about her daughter again. I am, I am not never gonna tell a story about Ella again. <laughs> she is too brilliant. But I am going to do everything I can to respect and, and appreciate and, and hold her as this, as this person and, and not as this charming and brilliant prop in my life. It's gonna be... It's going to be interesting. Thank you. Our second story is from the Wildside Festival at Centaur Theatre from January 2019. Our theme was Rites of Passage. Here's Deb Vanslet. I am driving a rattly, no-frills camper van, and I'm shifting the gears with my left hand. I'm leaning into the curves. Stay on the left, stay on the left, drive on the wrong side of the road. I feel like a radio wave tuned to the perfect frequency. My 20-year-old daughter suddenly asked me if I have directions. No, I, I didn't think of that. I don't need directions, I don't think. I'm going to see my friends who live on a farm in remote New Zealand, and I haven't seen them in 30 years, but I know where I'm going. <laughs> it's getting dark, and... Um, Still 30 minutes to go, so I, okay, let's concentrate, okay. Collingwood, yeah, but no, let's turn left. The next intersection is Heafy Track, that's very familiar, but actually it's the Estuary Bridge. Cross the bridge, the tide is out, plunge into the tunnel of trees, and just as I'm starting to doubt myself a little bit, there's the ocean. Follow the shoreline. A few minutes later, there's a sign up in the tree lit by a single bulb, the Inlet Hostel. We turn into the drive. Where's the house? Everything's grown up. I keep going, bumping along over Little Creek, and suddenly, in the headlights, I see Katie and Jonathan scampering down to greet us. 
I park the van weirdly and open the door, slip out, and the time just warps. The wind in the leaves, the stars in the southern sky, the smell of the farm, the ocean, the bush, it's all still here. Except for Katie's red hair. It's totally white. The first time that I saw Katie, she is dragging her kids into, into the hostel kitchen. And we startle her. We, the perfect strangers, are in her kitchen cleaning it. My girlfriend Gloria and I had been traveling for a few years and we were starting to get tired of moving around. We'd just done a stint in a cherry orchard, which didn't go all that well. Cherry trees are really high, the ladders are high, it's scary, plus we ate way too many of them. <laughs> so somebody told us about uh, woofing, about being a woofer, working on organic farms in exchange for room and board. This seemed like a good idea. For $2, we bought the booklet, photocopied, and chose the most remote place possible, Pakawa on the South Island of New Zealand, way up at the top, accessible only by crossing Takaka Hill, an imposing chunk of limestone and marble that you have to grind your way up and over. We arrive at the farm just as Jonathan is leaving to drive the afternoon school bus. Katie and the kids will be back soon. Make yourself at home. Gloria and I sit on the back porch of this old, run-down, gorgeous farmhouse. Sheep are buying off in the distance. The ocean is glittering past the gardens and the fruit trees. And the wind in the trees really captures my attention. Every forest has its own sound. In New Zealand, there's a lot of ferns, ponga, silver, rata trees, cabbage trees. It's like a language, and this language embeds itself in me. And I think, wow, this is paradise. I might just live here forever. But we are woofers, and the house is a mess. So we get up and start sweeping the floors and picking up the books and the toys, and we're just tackling the kitchen when Katie comes in. The four of us become very good friends. Katie and Jonathan are not that much older than we are, but they are living this whole alternative life, self-sufficient, organic farmers. Gloria and I just jump right in. Kate, uh, Jonathan teaches me how to drive the tractor. We have to prepare the field for the sweet potatoes, and it's so fun. But then I back into the ditch. We've got to get the neighbors to come and help us get the, get the tractor out. We drag seaweed from across the beach and we make this like liquid organic seaweed fertilizer. It's so stinky and we put it in packs and it's so heavy. Drag it up to the orchards and pump it on the trees. The cow gives birth. Jonathan gets his hand stuck on the electric fence. Goats break into the, into the garden one morning and eat half the lettuce. And the adorable one-year-old child throws a tantrum almost every single day, driving us quite crazy. Life in paradise is hard. Katie and Jonathan are mostly broke, and uh, they fight a lot. Gloria and I were not exactly fighting, 
but something is changing. She wants to move on, I want to stay. Something about our versions of freedom are changing. The first time I grappled with freedom, I was 13 years old, it was the early 1970s, and there was this reoccurring commercial on television, Freedom 55 Retirement. <laughs> and one day I, I finally got it, like, oh, you get a job. You get a full-time job, you stay at that job your whole life, and if you play your cards right, at 55 you will be freed into a world of golf games and a warm climate with your also freed at 55 husband. <laughs> there had to be more than that, but where? I didn't have the greatest view from my small town, but I knew I didn't want that. Eventually, I read Jack Kerouac, <laughs> and I wanted that. And then I met Gloria, and I wanted her. And together, we wanted out. So we took off, we hitchhiked across the country, and then we just kept going. 30 years pass. 30 years, and like for a mountain, say, is a blip in time. 30 years for human beings is quite a long time. Katie and Jonathan transformed the farm into a youth hostel, a very popular youth hostel. They live in this remote part of New Zealand, but the world came to them. They are doing so well. I'm doing well. But now I have to go home. I have to turn this camper van around and I have to point away from my friends, from the farm, the hostel, from my daughter who is staying on to work as a woofer in the exact same place that I did when I was her age. The poignancy really gets to me, and I burst out crying. I cry all the way to town, 20 solid minutes of tears. I put the hazards on. I'm going so slowly, I can't see. I don't want to go home. I want to be 20 again. Not really, but I want to live out the rest of my life in this camper van. There's Takaka Hill. Like Once I cross that, I'm, I'm really gone. And then I see two hitchhikers. That's me, that's me and Gloria. I wipe my tears away and pull over. They jump in and we start talking and laughing as we grind our way up and over the marble mountain. Thank you. I love these stories. I. What in particular do you love about them? I okay, so I've my daughter just turned six uh, yesterday, as of the recording of this podcast, actually, and something happened uh, right before the telling of the story. I had read this article about the way uh, that as parents we realize that our children are people, are fully grown people, and inspired this flash memory of my mother. There's one thing that my mother said to me when I was a kid when I was complaining about some terrible summer job. Uh, and about how, you know, I couldn't wait for real life to get started. And she said to me, if this isn't your real life, when does your real life start? And she was so frustrated with me. But in thinking about my kid, uh, I, it, it hit me that this person, this person that I love is more than a prop, is more than a funny kids say the darndest thing, things that I put on television. Uh, 
my kid is a person with all of these wants and feelings and dreams and hopes and fears. And that's really changed the way I talk about her. I, I definitely felt that in your story as well, Deb. The way you talk about your daughter is not as as a as a story prompt, but as, a, as this fully-fledged person. How is that for you? Yeah, a fully-fledged person that I have this big relationship with. And um, what's interesting about telling a story where she's involved is that she loves it. Yeah? Yeah. She loves that... Um, that, that she's part of, you could say, the co-creation of the story. She's not involved in the writing of it, but I I tell it to her. I ask her what she thinks, and um, I kind of get her approval, I guess, because that is one of the tricky things about telling pe- stories yeah. about people that we know, which we're doing all the time. It's just the closer they are to us, the harder it is. And it's true, she could be somebody who's too, was really private and not into it, but she's actually really into storytelling and she's into being a character in my stories. Uh, and this particular story um, is really about the two of us mm. at the same age, mm. you know, divided by, you know, the, the 30 years, but in the same place, um, at the same age. And the poignancy of it, as I told in the story, it just, it just overwhelms me as I say goodbye to her. You know, it's like, this is crazy. Could that much time have passed (laughs) that I'm now leaving her where I was at her age? And of course, that much time has passed. Of course it has. It's interesting. It's these bridges, right? Um, My story is really dealing with recognizing that once this person is out in the world, the transition from idea to baby, and later I talk a lot in my stories about baby to toddler, now toddler to child. And you're really talking about a step from not even child to teenager, but teenager to, to adult. Yeah. And it is so hard. I, I think about this all the time. How do we talk about these people who mean so much to us? How do we approach them in our storytelling? How do we avoid making them subjects and really making them uh, critical parts of our stories? I guess in this particular story, part of it for me was making sure that I was actually the central character. Yeah. That this was actually about me. I wasn't projecting anything onto her. Um, And it was about really my own, I guess you could say, not so much, yeah, uh, the poignancy of of growing older Mm. and then seeing um, seeing somebody that you love, letting them go and understanding that they're on the edge of the rest of their life. Mm. And I'm not. (laughs) like I've still got a bunch of life left to live (laughs) but I'm not perched on the edge of the rest of my life it's not this huge expanse Mm -hmm. Um, but that's me that's my perspective of it because certainly as I was driving away from her you know she was entering a whole other chapter of of her life and that would be really cool sometime to have her tell that part of the story you know I, I would love that. Uh, we have had storytellers tell stories and then their kids finish them. Uh, Michelle Lukes, who works on our show, right. told a beautiful two-part story yeah. with her daughter, uh, which maybe we should do an episode about at some point, because there is something really incredible about the way that um, we live experiences and then these people who depend on us have, uh, of course, their whole journey, their whole lives, their everything. I want to go back to this question. You, you mentioned that you talked to your daughter about the fact you were going to use her story. How Was she into it from the very beginning? Was this a conversation you had to warm her up to? Had you heard your other stories before? She's heard the other stories, the uh, the whole lesbian mom um, and how she was conceived story. I mean, she's heard that a million times, <laughs> just, you know, when we 
tell people. Right. But then to formally tell it as a story, oh, she loved that moment. She loved that moment. She actually, there's something about her identity mm-hmm. um, that she finds interesting and unique. Mm-hmm. And she owns it. And so to sort of, for me to sort of tell it um, appeals to her, I think, you know. I am so unsure how my daughter is going to feel about my yeah. stories in, in 15 years. Yeah, uh, know. I know right now she's very excited. She doesn't want to tell her stories. She has told me she has no interest in being on stage. Uh, but she loves that I talk about these stories. And, and I do tell my stories to her first, even though she was there and she lived them. Uh, but it is curious. I wonder how she's going to feel when she's 18, when she's 20. I hope good. I love her. And all of my stories, I think, reflect that, that I'm just a goofball trying to do the best I can. And she's a great kid. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I, I would think that uh, part of it is there is something really kind of beautiful about, about being the center of somebody's story hmm. as well. You know, so I'm thinking she's going to love it. Fingers crossed. Yeah. And I got some stories about Owen in there too. I've got two kids. Oh, you're right. We forget about Paul. Poor guy. (laughs) (laughs) But that does tie in with, you know, as we said at the top of the show, perspectives. And uh, and for me, uh, that's the big one because that story I told was my perspective. There is another one in there. And that'd be really interesting to know one day. Sounds good. We'll have that in a future episode. We'll have that in a future episode. Thanks so much for listening to Confabulation. We're a nonprofit dedicated to the art of true life storytelling. We run monthly autobiographical storytelling shows in Montreal, Toronto, and Victoria. You can learn more about the show and sign up for our mailing list at confabulation.ca or check us out on social media where we're at Confab Stories. Confabulation, the podcast, is produced by our team Cassandra Tugneri, Carolyn Michaels, Pat McTaggart, Dev Van Slet, Stephen Trepanier, and me, Matt Goldberg. Special thanks to the Conseil des Arts de Montreal for their support of Confabulation. We couldn't do it without you.